Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your host, Ted Miller, Senior Vice President at the Cancer Support Community. For more than 35 years, we at the Cancer Support Community have been a relentless ally for anyone impacted by cancer. We help individuals manage the realities of this disruptive disease and get back to normal. Whether accessing our free services in person at one of 175 locations, online, or over our toll-free helpline, you are getting a team of licensed professionals providing patient navigation, financial counseling, genetic counseling, pediatric support, and more. For well over a year now, we've all been following developments related to the COVID-19 pandemic and the impact it's had on every aspect of our lives. One of the most heart-wrenching has been the multitude of interviews that appear on the, that appear on the news of doctors struggling to keep up with the critical patients they are entrusted to care for and heal. Our doctors are tired, burned out, in some cases ready to quit. And they're not the only ones. Medical professionals at every level and job description have been stretched to the limits. But even before the pandemic, doctors and other healthcare providers were being tested by a number of stressors that impacted their emotional well-being and by extension, patient care. In June 2020, a survey from the American Society of Clinical Oncology revealed that 45% of its members reported experiencing signs of burnout. And no wonder. From their earliest days in medical school, doctors learned that to succeed, they must remain detached. Admitting vulnerability or tending to their own mental health needs was, until recently, seen as somehow shameful and a barrier to future professional advancement. Thankfully, the situation is changing in part due to the work of our guests today, Drs. Joseph Stern and Dan Shapiro. Both will speak to us about the challenges faced by doctors who care for us and new approaches and programs helping address the burnout that they experience. We're going to meet Dr. Stern first and later be joined by Dr. Shapiro. Our first guest is Joseph Jody Stern, a board-certified neurosurgeon in Greensboro, North Carolina. In his new book, Grief Connects Us, a neurosurgeon's lessons on love, loss, and compassion. He shares the lessons he's learned from his own personal journey through grief after his younger sister passed away from leukemia, along with those of patients and colleagues he's met over the course of his career. In the end, he says, empathy, vulnerability, and emotional agility are key to building not only stronger, stronger human connections, but to creating a more humane and compassionate healthcare system as well. A graduate of the University of Michigan Medical School, Dr. Stern is a member of the American Association of Neurosurgeons, the Congress of Neurosurgeons, and a fellow of the American College of Surgeons. He has served on a variety, on variety, on a variety of executive and steering committees at Cone Health, and for the past four years has been volunteering with One World Surgery in Honduras, where he has performed spinal surgery on patients with little to no access to medical care. Dr. Stern, welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Thank you, Ted. 
Okay. Yes. Well, I want to say, really start this off with, you're a surgeon, you've got, you're, you're back, you come with a background that has a lot of descriptors, surgeon, inventor, photographer, and now author of, of, this, of this book. So let's focus on that last descriptor. Why did you feel you had to write this book and uh, what was, or what was your motivation? Well, there were two reasons. My younger sister, Victoria, was diagnosed with uh, acute leukemia at age 51 And less than a year later, she, after a bone marrow transplant, she died. During her illness, she wrote a journal and she was an actress. She was a very vital and dynamic person. Um, And she wrote a journal about her illness. And she said she wanted to make this a one woman show about a one woman play about surviving leukemia. And unfortunately, she didn't survive. But initially, I was determined to let her make sure that her writing saw the light of day. And so I wove her voice into uh, the book. The other thing is that I was struggling to come to terms with uh, my own grief over her and her death. And I kind of had a, um, I would say, I would say kind of a personal crisis in the sense that I um, I found it difficult all of a sudden to keep that distance and emotional armor that I'd spent a lifetime uh, developing. And I I saw that it actually was flawed and had no utility, and I tried to get rid of it. And so over the course of uh, a number of years, I wrote and rewrote this book and moved from sort of a personal memoir to more uh, prescriptive nonfiction to basically say, well, what, what should we do differently? How can we do things differently? And what does a more compassionate-based healthcare system look like? And doctor, you talked some, as you just spoke about your sister Victoria's experience, I want to focus on prescriptive nonfiction, because that's a new uh, phrase that we had not really heard before. How do you think, uh, as you're, you're going through your experience as your sister's caregiver, and you, there were other uh, medical uh, circumstances that affected her family, uh, how did that feel? You know, you've described the, knowing the feeling of grief, but what was that like on a personal, how did writing this book and going through that process affect you personally as well as professionally? Did it, did you, were you changing the way you were writing the book because you were experiencing in real time some changes on your, on the professional side as well? Uh, sort of both. I mean, I wrote, I, I actually wrote this book um, backwards. Initially, I, I, I later discovered you're meant to write a proposal and then sell your proposal and then write a book. And I wrote the book. Um, and then I rewrote the book, and then I um, went to a writing course at Harvard where I uh, met a wonderful agent named Linda Connor, Linda Connor, who basically said, um, no one wants to read your memoir. No one is interested in your own personal journey. They want to know what we need to do differently. And so along with that, and, and the need, I realized I needed to rewrite the book, I also saw my experience was not unique. You know, my sister was a vital actress and mother who then became a patient. And I realized that's every one of us. That's every patient. So not only was she a patient, but I were all going to become patients. And so I realized that this uh, journey that I went through was important for me, but it wasn't, that's not the point. The point is we all go through a similar journey. We all deal with the same kinds of emotional upheaval. And so the personal transformation I went through was as if I went from seeing in black and white to suddenly seeing in color. And I realized that there's a lot of uh, problems where we, uh, we, we lack compassion in the care we give. And I saw what it was like to being on the receiving end of care. And I saw how terrifying it is for patients. So that was a real eye-opener for me. And so I... Um, I think I went through a personal transformation, but I also want, I, 
I interviewed patients and other doctors about their own experiences. And then I wanted to share some ideas on how we could do things differently and better. And better. And you mentioned, doctor, that the, the book agent said to you that no one wanted to read your memoir about your personal experience and what it's something. Do you think that that as a doctor, is that because as writing as a doctor that people would expect to get something, not just your personal account, but more direction on how your experience could influence their care? Do you think that your position as a doctor uh, influenced how you were treated as an author or, or your, uh, your viewpoint as an author? I think that um, I think that really I grew and evolved in the course yeah. of the uh, project. And initially, I was really kind of struggling to understand how this impacted me. But then once I was able to make that transformation and started to look at the way we do things in health systems, the way we take care of patients, the way patients need more compassion, and we need to put aside our emotional armor in favor of a more mm-hmm. open and um, um, connected uh, approach, I realized that's really an important message. That's that's really what I wanted to share is that there's a better way to do things, both for practitioners in terms of their own burnout. And you talked about burnout, but basically, you know, uh, rate of burnout I see is about 55%. And I realized oh. that a lot of, a lot of uh, clinicians burn out partly because they are taught to keep this barrier and these um, distance and objectivity and not allow themselves to become vulnerable. And I realized that when you're on the receiving end of healthcare, you, you mm-hmm. need that connection with your, with your providers and that vulnerability is essential. And then I discovered kind of, um, it was a pleasant surprise that once you let go of that um, objectivity and detachment and you become more vulnerable and you connect more deeply with patients, the job actually gets a lot more fun. It gets a lot more fun and satisfying. And yes, you have to experience emotions. And, um, but in the end, that's much more satisfying for me personally and professionally. And I'm, I'm a better doctor and I think I'm a better person. And surprisingly, I'm a happier um, practitioner. So it's kind of a, it's a shift, but it a, a, has had very uh, pleasant um, ramifications for me. Well, doctor, we we are coming up on our first break in just a couple of minutes, but I wanted to just ask you one more question. And I know later on in the segment, I want to hear more about how this has changed you as a physician and and the interaction with patients. But you talked a little bit about the universal uh, or common experience of grief. Can you just expand on that a little bit? What What, if you had to sum it up in a couple of sentences, what is based on your experience in all those interviews? How does, how would you describe that? What do you think are the common elements that people experience? You know, there's a tremendous sadness that people have when they, yeah. when, when a loved one dies or there, and, and so many times people are taught to just kind of suck it up and keep it private and keep it, uh, take it out of their normal life. And I feel that we make a huge mistake when we don't talk to people about it, when they don't, we don't talk to them about their losses, about what they've gone through. And once you start connecting with them, it's this powerful bond that shapes mm-hmm. how you, how you think of each other, how you treat each other and how you, um, it's just, it's a very positive, it's a little bit frightening. You'll be amazed at how often people avoid the subject. And once you, mm-hmm. once you welcome it and you are willing to face it, it's a very powerful connector for people. Doctor, we're going to we're gonna talk more about the powerful connector and that you've talked, that's discussed in your book and in our next segment. Uh, 
because we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we're coming back, we're continuing our conversation with Dr. Stern. In particular, I'm going to ask you about some of the, the examples that you've written about in the New York Times and the Washington Post and spoken about on other platforms, because I think that really puts a lot of the, the a narrative around uh, the cause that you've really started with uh, writing this book and focusing on uh, how the personal can affect the professional. Thank you. Right. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, but we'll return after a short break. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today we're talking with Dr. Joseph Stern about Dr. Burnout. He is a neurosurgeon who's experienced caring for his younger sister, who was diagnosed with leukemia, forever changed how he cares for his patients. He is outspoken about improving patient care by encouraging doctors to connect their vulnerability and grief. Dr. Stern's writings have appeared in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, and he presented a TED Talk on the subject last year. His new book is called Grief Connects Us, a neurosurgeon's lessons on love, loss, and compassion. So welcome back to the program, Dr. Stern. It's great to have you. Great to have you here. We're in the second segment, and we had a little bit of a break beforehand, and there was one phrase that we discussed and one that you really wanted to make sure we covered today. That's called emotional agility. Can you give us a little bit of, could you first define it in your own terms and then maybe talk about how it's incorporated into your practice and your overall cause? So if you're defended and uh, distant, then you're protected and you're not vulnerable, but you're not very flexible. Uh, 
And the problem is that if you try to have that defended posture, that sort of bleeds into your regular life. It becomes difficult to turn off the barriers that you put up in your own personal life. And so I realized I didn't like that feeling. When you get rid of the emotional armor, then you have to be flexible because you see a tremendous range. And when you think about, so I'm a neurosurgeon, so one minute I'm having this deeply uh, connected, emotionally, um, often sometimes emotionally wrenching discussion with a patient about their prognosis or about uh, brain cancer or what's going on. And then I have to go back and uh, put on my game face and go into the operating room and do something uh, very precise in terms of surgery. And so I realized that I needed new skills. So if you're going to be vulnerable, you have to be able to be flexible. And I was talking to my friend, Helen Rice, who's a a trainer of empathy and um, a professor of psychiatry at Harvard, who I met, who told me that basically what I needed was emotional agility. And then there's a wonderful book by Susan David, which talks about that and takes you through the steps towards emotional agility. And I say that like it's a simple solution, but it's actually pretty tough. It requires a lot of work to become emotionally agile, but then it allows you to become flexible, to recognize that life's Mm -hmm. beauty is inseparable from its fragility. Mm -hmm. And so I, I regard emotional agility as being able to be present and, uh, living in the moment and being connected in the moment and doing the things that are needed of you at that time in, in, in the present. So it's much more, it's less of a future focus or past focused and more, more being present and doing what's required of you at that time. Doctor, how have some of your colleagues reacted to this concept? Because you just mentioned neurosurgeon for the a lay person like me or for most patients or people going through this, this experience, when you hear the term neurosurgeon, expert comes to mind. And what it means to be a neurosurgeon is you come into the room with an incredible amount of training, an endless list of credentials. How do, and that is, that sort of qualifies you to be in the examining room or providing advice and counsel to patients. How have some of your, how have some of your colleagues reacted to the fact that in addition to being published or in addition to being recognized for their surgical accomplishments, that, uh, Emotional agility should be something that they put into their professional growth as well. Um, one of the people that I work with um, yeah. says to me, um, oh, this is about Dr. Stern becoming a human being. And the thing <laughs> is, I feel like there's this kind of um, image of a neurosurgeon as sort of a, uh, a nerd and not very uh, empathic. I would say that if, if a neurosurgeon can become empathic and compassionate, then really anyone can. <laughs> but, but I would also say that it's, I think it's of of vital importance. And one of the things that's been really wonderful for me on this journey is building a community of like-minded people who see the same thing and recognize that we really need to change the way we are doing things fundamentally in medical care in this country Mm -hmm. in terms of having a basis in compassion. And so I find that I am speaking to a receptive audience and I feel that, um, I think it makes a difference. I I would also at the same time say that not everyone is receptive and not everyone acknowledges this is being important. Um, And so I feel it's a little bit of an, a little bit of an uphill battle, but one I'm prepared Mm. to take on. That's, that's amazing. And, and doctor, we talked earlier, I referenced earlier that you had some incredible stories that you've written about in the New York times and other publications. And one, when you talk about your interaction with your 
colleagues or other physicians, there was one story, and I'll, I'll just refer to it as Alan. I'd like you to sort of set up and what, what the circumstances are around Alan, who I believe was a retired physician himself, and just the way that you told that story about how you as two doctors connected when he was going through a diagnosis and what, what kind of a, with emotional agility or compassion uh, are examples that were covered in that, that experience. Yeah, so Alan Davidson was an emergency room doctor at our hospital, and he came in one night with, um, uh, I guess, weakness or numbness on one side of his body, and he was diagnosed with a glioblastoma, which people know is a pretty aggressive um, brain tumor. And I kind of went through this um, journey with him. I did surgery on him and then afterwards kind of sat and talked with him. Then he came back in the hospital, was readmitted when he had a worsening of, of numbness and he was having trouble using his arm. And I was talking with him about what I wanted to say and how I wanted to tell his story. And he said he really wanted to for people to know his story because we talked about how we kind of create distance and and um, and barriers and how he felt that it, it wasn't necessary, wasn't appropriate. And he, he wanted people to know his story, but I felt in, in that journey with him that I was able, it was kind of a test case for what I've been trying to do of being able to be more compassionate, to sit at the bedside, to cry with a patient, to not, um, and you know what, at the same, same time, provide um, a good level of care. And so I felt that I, um, I learned from him a lot in that process. And, and you described in that story in your writings about that experience, I was really touched by how you were so, you're, you described your own vulnerability, sitting on his bed, talking to his family. I'm, I'm curious what you were, was going through your mind, because you were talking to someone who had a level of medical knowledge that most patients don't have, but he was, if I understand correctly, was there with his family. Mm-hmm. And then you described, if I under, leaving that experience, feeling somewhat more energized than you normally do in those circumstances. Can you talk a little bit more about how that happened? Yeah, I realized at that point that I had actually, I had achieved my goal of leaving uh, behind the emotional armor, that I was able to connect on an emotional and, and really meaningful level, I think for him and certainly for me with him and his family. And then I was able to go back to the operating room, do another surgery and feel that I could move between these two states pretty pretty effortlessly. And that to me was very affirming that I was, I felt, I felt I had developed new capacities to be able to function effectively as a doctor. I, I, I recognized with my sister um, and, you know, her husband had a, after she died, her husband had a ruptured aneurysm in his brain and then was, uh, it ended up dying as well. And I recognized what it was like to being on the receiving end of that medical care and neurosurgical care. And I, I didn't want my friend to have that kind of distant, you know, disconnected experience. And so I knew it was important for him. And I realized it was also important for me. But I think that it's, I guess, one of the risks you say, well, if you're going to become emotionally connected and compassionate and empathetic, are you going to be a less effective surgeon? And the answer is no. You know, if you're, if you develop some emotional agility, you can flex between pretty extreme ranges of emotions and do a good job in both settings. And, and Dr., you mentioned the, the sort of the emotion, the continuum of the definition of success as a physician. And that's so telling because it doesn't, is that, is that something that you 
have any learn? Do, do you expect medical students and people who are going to be the future of neurosurgeons? Would you like them to see, get some training in how to become emotionally agile so that, that, that they can factor that into their success as well? So my son has just started medical school. He's a first oh, medical okay. student. And now I've been teaching at UNC Chapel Hill, um, third year medical student. Okay. And so I've been teaching them about this and I, they've been reading my book. And I think that it, medical school has improved a lot from when I went, but it's still got a long way to go. You know, I think that there's a tendency you select these hyper competitive, hyper achieving people And then you say, oh, now you've got to be empathetic and compassionate, but there's not actually any education in that. And I think that it behooves us to teach people to develop these skills. These are not, these are trainable skills, but it requires work. And so one of the, my goals is I don't want to have other people have to go through a crisis in the middle of their life where they realize, wow, you know, I could have done better. Why not start with a better understanding of what you of the of the tools of the resources of the ability to be flexible, and so one of my goals I'm I'm speaking I think next week uh, or the week after to Georgetown University Medical School, and so I I'm starting to um, I want to get more and more in uh, with medical students to talk with them about their these issues because I think they're super important. And it's funny because I often think, well, what would I have done if someone had come at my, from where I am now and talked to me then? And I don't know that I would have gotten it, but mm-hmm. I think I would have had a better sense of the language and the issues at, at stake, which would have allowed me to, um, to understand and to grow better. Well, doctor, we have just a couple of minutes left on the program, and you've referenced your your book, and really that sort of encapsulates the the mission that you're on as a champion of compassion. And, and where what do you think patients and caregivers are going through the experience? What briefly do you think that they will get? Uh, what do you hope that they will get from reading your book? I think that there's a power dynamic in medical care, which a lot of times is counterproductive. And I think people, uh, patients and doctors need to realize that they're kind of on the same page. I mean, a lot of the grief things that I've dealt with, my patients are dealing with. And um, so that kind of leveling of the playing field and sort of connecting us on a more basic level, I think has a profound consequence. I think that patients should demand that level of connection with their doctors. I think if doctors substitute the technical and the precision for the meaningful empathic connections, I think it's not good. And I think a lot of times patients don't feel that it's their prerogative to say, well, I really want more from this relationship and I really need more from this relationship. And so I I want patients to ask for that. I think that one of the ways that we will change how we deliver healthcare Mm -hmm. is if people demand um, a different um, relationship with their doctors. Great. Well, that's important advice for our audience, doctor. And I just wanted to, to end not only th- thank you for coming on today and really sharing this experience and enlightening us about emotional agility and the work that you're doing uh, to make a more compassionate uh, healthcare workforce. I am thinking that just we have a little bit of under, under a minute. And one story that really stuck out to me was, I think if we can just close on this one, uh, tell us about, and I know that we're short on time, Megan, your patient, and she's a, she was a teacher. Uh, Just really briefly what that story was about. Well, so she came in and she uh, needed a reservoir put in her brain for chemotherapy for metastatic breast cancer to her brain. And um, I, I saw in her, I realized this was just like my sister, you know, she's a mother, she's a teacher, she's a vital person. And she was scared to death. And I, I actually sat there with her and I cried with her and 
you know, she said, I want to finish out the school year with my students. And so I realized, well, that's the real, the, the biggest priority, not scheduling a procedure, but let's work within her goals and objectives mm-hmm. to have as much quality of life as she possibly could. Well, doctor, I think all of us can say we hope that uh, anyone who's in Megan's uh, circumstance or other folks who are in that circumstance can have the kind of doctor-patient uh, relationship that you just described. Uh, thank you again for coming on today. I think we're, we've learned so much and shared uh, that's going to be so useful to our community. And uh, good luck with everything and congratulations again on the book. Well, thank you so much. Nice talking with you, Ted. And absolutely. Thank you. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Ted Miller. We're going to continue our in-depth look at Dr. Burnout with someone who brings a unique perspective to the conversation. Dr. Dan Shapiro has been treating physicians and experiencing burnout for more than 20 years. He currently serves as Vice Dean for Faculty and Administrative Affairs at Penn State College of Medicine and has developed a systemized approach for addressing the causes of burnout on both an institutional and personal level. He earned his PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Florida and completed his internship and postdoc fellowship at Harvard Medical School. In 2003, his memoir about one physician's burnout and redemption, Delivering Dr. Amelia, became the go-to source on the subject in colleges and medical schools. 
Since then, his writings have appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine, Journal of the American Medical Association, and on NPR's All Things Considered. As impressive as these credentials are, part of what distinguishes Dr. Shapiro is that he has faced a life-threatening challenge early in his life. At the age of 20, he was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma and spent the next five years undergoing a grueling regimen of surgeries, radiation treatments, and a bone marrow transplant. In 1992, five months after marrying oncology nurse Terry Wickley, he had his first cancer clear scan. And in 2005, Shapiro experienced cancer again, this time as Terry's caregiver, as she was being treated for breast cancer. Together, they wrote And in Health, a guide for couples facing cancer together, which combines psychological science, humor, and the wisdom of experience to help ordinary couples navigate cancer as effectively as possible. Dr. Dr. Shapiro, thank you for being with us today on Frankly Speaking with Cancer. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, so, so we, we, you, we talked earlier in this program about how the COVID-19 pandemic has really magnified uh, the issue of physician burnout or uh, and it's burnout in general with the healthcare workforce. But this is something you've really dedicated your career to. So what do you see as the changing sort of dynamics of this conversation? And what, do you, what, do you, what has surprised you about this, the, the newfound uh, focus? Or what opportunities do you think that, that uh, the pandemic has brought forward that could help us sort of address this issue in a more systematic way and really help the doctor-patient relationship? So when I first encountered burnout, it was as a young psychologist. I'd just taken my very first faculty job. Um, I was, I'd done this fellowship at Harvard focused on applying new psychological models to medical patients. And then a physician who had referred me some patients came to see me himself, uh, which was a little surprising. And, and he was from a, a specialty we often stereotype as being cold and uncaring. I won't say which one, uh, surgery. And he did this really kind of courageous, honest piece of work and treatment, and then referred me some of his colleagues. And pretty soon I had this large practice filled with physicians and some nurses, and I began to notice patterns in them. Um, And at the time, uh, honestly, burnout wasn't really talked about much. And so, you know, more recently, we have seen a a real awakening, I think, uh, across the country, uh, reflecting the fact that it is incredibly difficult to be um, a physician or a nurse. And actually, now in some of our work with multi-hospital systems, I've got a, a, a modest-sized consultancy that, that works with these uh, multi-hospital systems. And we've noticed, you know, burnout going down to the techs, the therapists, uh, pharmacists, even transport folks. Um, essentially, healthcare is a really challenging environment to work in. And of course, as you mentioned, from the other side of the bed, I know that it hasn't been great to, to be a patient either. You know, we, we call this thing a medical system, but sometimes what it feels like is a loosely affiliated set of feudal states, um, you know, and as a patient trying to navigate into these systems is incredibly, incredibly difficult. And doctor, as you said before, we, you've been doing this for 20 years. So you talk about the professionals and talk about how, the, how widespread this is, but are there some common symptoms or signs to burnout that you've identified in, in your work or that all of us who maybe have relatives who are healthcare workers or doctors should be aware of and could help identify? That, that's a great question. I think the folks that get the most attention are those that, that are angry, right? That's one form. That's one way that 
that burnout gets expressed. People get chippy with one another or they get in trouble for throwing things or somehow the system notices them for, for acting out. But that's actually fairly uncommon. I think much more common uh, are folks who just get weary, emotionally numb, um, tired, fatigued. And I think of burnout as uh, the erosion of executive function, which is a real fancy way to say that the air traffic controller in your mind that, that controls your attention, that it controls memory, it controls and modulates your emotion and helps you manage other people's emotion, all the things you need to diagnose and treat. With burnout, those things begin to erode. Um, so if I sleep deprive you for a long time, for example, um, you, you know, for every 24 hours you're sleep deprived, your cognition deteriorates a bit, right? Um, uh, and some of this work comes from the military. A soldier who's uh, sleep deprived for say 96 hours can still shoot at a stationary target as well as she could uh, at baseline. But if she has to respond to popping up targets that come up randomly, her performance degrades to just 10% as good as it was. So that's just one small example um, of the things that, that cause burnout. But that that's kind of gives you an idea of what, what happens to people's thinking. The other thing we see is people steal time. They, um, they leave early, they show up late, um, they're less responsive. Um, it's just like, you know, the, the ram is just occupied. You get that spinning beach ball sometimes. And, and doctor, that, just given that vivid example, it's pretty astounding. And because so many of us know people who are going through these circumstances, but to your point, is that it's not something that's evident to us because it, the, so the erosion of executive function, as you described it, can be so can just impact everything that they're 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 doing as physicians, as healthcare workers. I, I want to ask you though, because this is something you've mentioned in the past, that the denial of mental health needs really starts in medical school. What have you done in your work to really change that that paradigm and, and enforce maybe so that, so that people entering or starting their careers in medicine are taking better care of themselves or, or understanding the, 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 the very signs of a burnout that you just described? Yeah, th- th- thanks for that question. You think about the, one of the first things we do to a medical student, we introduce them to their cadaver right? That's how you learn anatomy and physiology. And if you sit in the room and watch them meet their cadaver, as I have, you can only tell in a class of 148 that two of them are freaking out because they'll leave the room to throw up. But the other 146 hang in there. And yet, if you ask them in a questionnaire, were you freaked out when you met your cadaver? Two thirds of them will say, absolutely. My heart was pounding. I was sweating. I was thinking about my grandmother's death. It was horrible. The other two thirds uh, have generally had experience close up with death. They've, they've worked in an EMR, I mean, in an emergency situation or um, um, some other massive exposure. They've worked in ERs or that sort of thing. Um, and that, that event, we are teaching them basically to separate what's on their face from what's in their heart from the very, very beginning. To your question, I think we've gotten better at this. And honestly, the kids, you know, they're medical students, I'm calling them kids. They've gotten better too. They're coming in with a sense of life balance. Where this has gotten pushed to now is I think much more in the residencies where we're really asking people to put their foreheads down and grind it out. And there's no question that physicians need the ability to do that. And so do nurses. 
and other folks, you must at times be able to suck it up and get your work done. But if that's a dominant way you are in the world all the time, it's really troubling. Uh, our programs are getting better. Medical schools are starting to get more mental health programs, and we're starting to reduce the stigma, but we still have a long way to go. And doctor, I know we just have a few minutes before our first break in the program, but I wanted to see if you could describe for us the work you're doing actually at Penn State with some of the administrators there to implement some of the changes uh, that you've recommended or discussed. So um, I'm partnering with a number of multi-hospital systems now, um, and I'll describe the work in this way. What we do is we basically use Maslow's hierarchy, which you know, folks may have had as, uh, in college or even in high school, which is basically, let's focus on the fundamentals first. Are you eating, sleeping, drinking, having to hold your pee for more than an hour? Are you mentally healthy, depressed, anxious, suicidal? That's the first level. Up from there, are you physically and emotionally safe? Up from there is respect, then appreciation and connected. And finally, it's our contention. If we clean up things lower in the hierarchy, you get to a place where you feel connected. So we use the hierarchy. Here at Penn State, you know, it, we created a faculty lounge near the surgeons, near where people are performing surgeries, because honestly, they were dehydrated and hungry uh, a lot of the time and begging just for a cup of coffee and some water. So, you know, that's just starting at the basics and then moving up to safety. At some of the places I've worked with, you know, we found that as many as 50% of the nurses have been struck, bitten, kicked or spit on in the last year. Wow. That makes being a nurse more violent than being a prison guard. You know, that's a really, that's, and it's, and it's, it matters, right? People who are punched in the face, like, you know, as Mike Tyson said, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Well, that's true. It makes it really hard to be, so increasing safety, getting them help they need so that when they're with patients who are either enraged or demented or delirious, there are other people around to to help them, Um, you know, so then you meet them at that level. I think the main problem we have nationally is that people are throwing darts at the problem too often instead of systematically measuring and addressing burnout the way it needs to be addressed. That's so interesting that you mentioned about the systemic, just something as simple as a lounge, which are you surprised that no one came up with that idea before? And to borrow another use phrase, does it create the safe space for these healthcare professionals and doctors? I think the lounge is, yeah, I, I want to clarify that, you know, it's easy to say, well, no one, you know, that, uh, a tray full of crackers and water isn't going to cure burnout. And that's true. But if people are dehydrated and if they're hungry all day and they're skipping meals, that influences your cognition. That begins to erode your cognitive function. It erodes your executive function. So it is one small part of what needs to be a holistic plan. But And, and having some space to unwind, debrief, and if you need to chart, you can chart while you're there. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one small piece in a comprehensive program. Well, doctor, we're going to take a quick commercial break and continue our conversation with you when we come back. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, 
The Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Ted Miller. With me is Dr. Dan Shapiro, a psychologist and young adult cancer survivor who later was a caregiver to his wife when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Dr. Shapiro has more over 20 years experience healing physician burnout. In addition, he has worked for the past 10 years as a consultant to such hit, hit television shows as Grey's Anatomy, Private Practice, and how to get away with murder. Dr. Shapiro, in the earlier segment, we were describing sort of the, the burnout and the signs of burnout. And I wanted to sort of change things up a bit and get to another part of your work. And that's patient. How can patients engage in this? What, what is their role? Can they ask doctors questions about burn, about their own circumstances or burnout? How, what would you advise patients who are listening to this segment and saying, oh, my doctor is going through some things. What can I do to be helpful? So one, it's a great question. One, one of the things that we've noticed is actually when we ask physicians of different specialties, if they feel they have an important impact on their patients, the group that comes out at the very top, and this has been across the hospital systems we've looked at, are oncologists. They often enjoy special relationships with their patients and do feel that they're having an impact. That said, because burnout is so endemic right now and, and so part of the work I think it is worth when physicians and nurses treat us well to express that, to express our gratitude. And sometimes it's hard to do that in the moment when we are wordless and vulnerable, but it is still, uh, I think, an essential part uh, of these relationships. The reality is both groups, health professionals and patients, bring some vulnerability to this circumstance. We, you know, whenever we rub up against one another in a circumstance where they're trying to heal us without being, um, you know, fried by the paperwork, the bureaucracy, the, you know, the potential violence, angry patients, um, you know, difficult to work in systems, pre-authorizations, you know, it's this, it's this flood. It's not an easy environment to work in. And hearing a little appreciation from the other side, boy, that goes a long way. And I know, you know, as a patient, I harbored mixed feelings about my docs. I really did. There were some that were amazing. And there were some that were so cold and difficult and distant. And, you know, I was underdosed by one. You know, I mean, I, I ran into the same problems that a lot of people run into in healthcare. Um, 
and so remembering when you find one that's actually tremendous and takes the time to sit with you shoulder to shoulder, it is worth thanking them and expressing your gratitude. And doctor, when you talk about modeling good behavior based for both for doctors as well as patients, I don't think we mentioned earlier about your role in, in some of the Grey's Anatomy and other shows, but we know the power of pop culture and how people can you know, watch programs or whatever else to see some of their favorite characters. Tell us a little bit of what it's like to advise on scripts or, or setting up circumstances on their shows where you could perhaps give people a sense of what it means to express gratitude, whether it's to someone on a character, a fictional character on Grey's Anatomy. Do you, do you think that there's some power in that, in that medium? Oh, I think that, that you know, Ted, I think you're, you're pointing out something um, that's really powerful. The, the Grey's Anatomy, private practice, how to get away with murder. You know, people learn a lot from these programs and begin to assume that real healthcare is exactly like what it is they're seeing. Um, you know, on Grey's Anatomy, you can have 10 attending physicians in one patient's room. Your chance of finding 10 attendings in one patient's room, it's infinitesimal. Tests all come back stat. The only main similarity between Grey's Anatomy and Penn State is that we are all just as good looking. Yeah, is that, <laughs> well, speaking of that's, that, well, I, one of the points you talked about was adding some humor into this, not only we cross the pop culture and, and into the exam room and, and whatever else. How do you think that has, how do you coach physicians to not only address sort of burnout issues, but how would you coach them to sort of model that behavior of asking for, you mentioned gratitude earlier. Do you actually tell, uh, prompt physicians to ask different questions of the patients to get that kind of reaction? Um, I generally don't work in that way with um, physicians or nurses when I'm working on these, uh, on the, the, the burnout work. I went from doing these day long health seminars with physicians and then, and people would leave feeling tremendous. And then I'd follow up with them like a dutiful psychologist, you know, six weeks later to see if the changes we'd initiated in those day-long wellness seminars were effective and found out they were epic failures. It's really the, the systems that make a difference, I think. So, um, but I am curious about what would happen if we encouraged patients to really think more carefully about the energy they were bringing in to the systems. It's just right now, I think there's so much desperation. We've got a national nursing shortage, so people aren't getting care as fast as they want. And there's, um, you know, a lot of disappointment and anger in the system. And until that's cleared, I think it's going to be difficult for health professionals to feel the level of appreciation they want. So it's up to each of us, you know, one at a time, if we do have a good experience and are treated well, to express that. That's good advice for patients, too, when you talk about the people who are listening to this program are some who are going through these circumstances in real life. What What is it in terms of your sort of connection between, you mentioned the ability to test things to see whether they will work. You talked about the seminars and how that may have not, may have not uh, come epic to fruition. Epic failure. You're very diplomatic. Epic, yeah, epic, well, epic failure. But what is it in, in healthcare? Is there just, can you explain a little bit about the, the combination of burnout and just the resistance to going outside what our routine practices? Um, you know, we, we don't have uh, enough nurses right now. We have um, a lot of burnout in the system. We've got a lot of patients. Our systems are not as efficient as they probably ought to be. 
and um, that creates real friction. The electronic health records are getting much better. They are maturing. A few years ago, all physicians, you know, all the physicians I knew were throwing up their fists in the air, um, you know, feeling absolutely tortured. And for good reason. They, they were just, you know, not great systems and they've gotten considerably better. We're moving in the right direction, I think. But, um, you know, between the pandemic and there is a certain amount of anti-science sentiment in the air right now that is also deeply affecting physicians for whom science is a religion. You know, they, they really care about this science and the fact that anyone with any opinion at all can broadcast it and even amplify mm-hmm. it is, I think, deeply personally painful. So, Doctor, I know we just have a couple minutes left, and you mentioned something earlier, a fact that we just don't want to make sure that we don't escape, and the fact that the Penn State faculty is as attractive as the cast of Grey's Anatomy. So, I wanted to end, uh, you, you brought up a lot of very important points, but let's say that there is a movie made about uh, your efforts and the efforts of your colleagues to really to resolve burnout among physicians. Who plays you in that movie? I mean, how could you think of anyone at, other than Matt Damon? I mean, the advantage of this circumstance right now is that it's radio and you can't see how different the two of us really look. Well, we'll leave that for folks to, uh, to Google on their own, but I think we have about a, a minute left. And I think uh, we always give our, uh, our guests who've you know, been so incredibly generous with their time. Uh, do you have a couple of like parting words for our listeners before we end this episode of frankly speaking about cancer? Well, you know, let me just focus on the patient perspective. Having been, you know, I was in and out of treatment for five years, relapsed twice, had more chemotherapy and radiation really than one person should be allowed to enjoy. And then, you know, watched my wife have some of the same chemotherapy that I'd had. You know, we shared adriamycin and some other tough drugs. Being a patient is, you know, requires organization. It requires assertiveness and, um, you know, playing the long game, uh, I think. So, you know, being able to focus on what one has to do today and not necessarily the big picture is really, I think, essential in, in keeping one's sanity. And, you know, as you know, I wrote a book with, with my wife about being a couple. And that's another piece that's really hard for me. It was harder to be her spouse and watch her go through the experience um, than it was to go through it myself. Uh, so, you know, trying to look after one another as best we can, understanding that all these jobs are stressful. Uh, I think that's the main take home. Thank you so much for those parting words, doctor. I think they mean a lot to all the people who are listening. I would just remind our listeners that they can go to our website, cancersupportcommunity.org, or call us at 888-793-9355 to address some of the issues that uh, Dr. Shapiro just outlined that patients and caregivers are going through if they're experiencing a diagnosis. I just want to thank you again, Dr. Shapiro, for joining us and telling in. Till next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. support community.org.